The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintzemeyer. For episode 7, I'll be talking to Gary Lucas, an amazing and versatile guitarist who has put out around 30 albums. Probably his most famous associations are first at the very beginning of his career in the early 80s. He appeared on the last couple of Captain Beefheart albums. However, he didn't actually become a full-time professional musician until the very late 80s when he released a solo album and had a band called Gods and Monsters that he was trying to get a major label record deal for. And he got this singer, Jeff Buckley, to join him for a year of that experience. You are right now listening to the demo version of the song that was originally called Rise Up To Be, when it was a Gary Lucas guitar instrumental, but when Jeff Buckley added lyrics, it became Grace. And Gary had high hopes for this collaboration being the foundation of a band as awesome as Led Zeppelin, where the guitarist and the singer would sort of be of equal stature, equal parts of the songwriting, but Jeff Buckley and the label people didn't really want that, so Jeff Buckley ended up going solo. However, this song, Grace, and another one called Mojo Pin, that originated in the same way with one of Gary's instrumentals, became the first two tracks on the one and only award-winning, super-important Jeff Buckley album, Grace. Now, Jeff Buckley died in 1997, but Gary has written about this whole experience in a book released a couple years ago called Touched by Grace, My Time with Jeff Buckley, which I did read in preparation for this episode. Now, that collaboration is only, of course, one of many that Gary has engaged in. We're going to discuss first a brand new instrumental called Will O' The Wisp, and I'll have some more news about that track at the very end of this episode, so listen all the way through. Next, we'll discuss Overture, which is a track from a 2016 album called Stereopticon, credited to Gary Lucas and Jan Klos. Then we'll talk about a song called The Wall, which is off of Gary's 2010 album, The Edge of Heaven. Like everything else on that album, it's actually a cover of a 1930s Chinese pop song. And finally, we're going to listen to a track called The Kid, which is from the 2014 album Otherworld, credited to Peter Hamill, one of my favorite singers, formerly of Vandergraaf Generator, and Gary Lucas, who again wrote this as an instrumental, which the singer, Peter, later added vocals to. And if you're wanting to get a hold of this version of Grace by Jeff Buckley and Gary Lucas, look for the album Songs to No One. Hey, I'm here with Gary Lucas. It's an honor for me to be on your program today. We're going to play through three largely guitar pieces, not surprisingly. I guess I'm known primarily in the world as a guitarist. I like to also remind people I am also, you know, Grammy-nominated songwriter, and I've written close to 300 original compositions. Some of them they may know as Grace and Mojo Pin. They started as my original solo guitar instrumental. Well, is that how the one from uh, Joan Osborne's Relish worked as well? Yeah, the origins of that song, which is from her three million selling Relish album, it's a song called Spider Web, and it is the coolest thing on that album. Oh, uh, thank you. <laughs> I think so, but I had an instrumental on my very first solo album, Skeleton at the Feast, in 1990, a track called Tompkins Square Dance. A couple of years later, when the producer Rick Chertoff was looking to help Joan assemble new songs for her major label debut, he said, you got any music for us? So I went into that riff. And that emerged eventually as Joan's song, Spiderweb. The sad part of that for me is that she was really rocking with uh, One of Us. If you remember that song, What If God Is One of Us. And Spiderweb was up next in the bullpen as the next single. It got sidelined, but I know the year that album came out in 94 and in 95 in traveling around places. If I mentioned to people that I was one of the writers on Spiderweb, people were like, you wrote Spiderweb? You know, I couldn't believe it. Well, it sounds like most of your compositions start with, you were saying in your book, just sitting down with the guitar and what feels good, what comes out and sort of latching on to... I'm not an academic 
kind of a songwriter. I know there are guys out there who can be inspired and they'll write down notes on a napkin and whatnot. I have to be right on a one-on-one relation with the instrument of my guitar, cradled in my lap. And then I work with a little tape recorder. This goes back to the Captain Beefheart era. When I was playing in his band, Tom Van Vliet, a.k.a. Captain Beefheart, who was my mentor in music, he insisted that we all go get these Sony cassette quarters. That was like a little bit bigger than a cigarette box. Cassette tape recorder. I guess that's a vanished format, pretty oh, much. Oh, I, I used that for a long time. Now the iPhone, just the little record thing. I use the memo function yes. on the iPhone. That's taken over. But in those days, it had to be the cassette quarter. And at any time of day or night, you might hear from him. I used to get calls at 3 in the morning, and he go. Get your tape recorder, man. Now, check this out. And then he'd whistle into the phone. He'd go like, kind of tuneless whistling. Then he'd say, learn that on the guitar, man. That's actually one of the questions I was going to ask you was the contrast. We should get to the first song first, but this is sort of the culmination. So this is Will of the Wisp, and this is unreleased yet. This is your latest acoustic guitar instrumental. There have been some subsequent ones, but this is the first one I've been able to get down in a good recording recently. I was listening to this back-to-back with Evening Bell, <laughs> the old instrumental for Captain Beefheart, which right. I had read that you had arranged based on his idea, and I was trying to figure out, like, how would that possibly work? How would he possibly communicate that to you? So I'm glad that it is just okay. as spontaneous as it sounds. But huge difference. I'll post uh, Evening Bell for folks to listen to. But this Will of the Wisp one, I mean, this is certainly much more soothing and organized. I'm very proud of this instrumental, and I think it's a candidate for a really good song. I just have to find the right collaborator who can step up to the plate to put a melody line and a lyric to it. That's what I'm in, on a hunt for right now. Well, let's see what folks think of it. I was actually picturing that if I was going to put a melody line to this, what would it be? And it's such a busy instrumental. Like, I thought specifically this was one written that was not supposed to have a singer against it because unlike many of your instrumentals that people have sung against, there's not a lot of breathing space. You'd be singing whole notes <laughs> pretty much. That's true. It's very active on the finger picking. But if Jeff Buckley was alive today, I know he would have been able to find the right music vocally to put against it.
I was trying to listen to this and break this down a little bit. I mean, you've got this section sort of going back and forth between, uh, it sounds like an F and an E, and it's in 12, 8 time. This is, again, just kind of what your fingers were naturally doing, not thinking in terms of time signatures so much. Let's see. I can read music. I'm classically trained. I kind of chucked this approach, unless I really need to, because I am of the Beefheart school. He definitely imprinted his methodologies on my consciousness in a big way. And he basically said, music is just black ants crawling across white paper. It's like I was with a friend of mine the other day who was like, well, this is in the Mixolydian mode, and then they go into the Phrygian mode. Now, I studied a little bit music theory before quitting at, at Yale. I just find it gets in the way for me, enjoyment-wise, and also I like to play from the heart. I'm really coming out of that folk tradition, which is not an academic tradition. As far as my own composing methods, I like to just let these things emerge. It's almost like a sculptor with a block of marble. I chisel away at these compositions. I kind of hone them on the fly until then it coheres into what seems like the right sequence of notes and time signatures. But I don't even think about what they are. You know, like, I mean, I knew when I was composing the music for Grace... It was kind of a waltz, but I never really broke it down. It was only like if you read my book, Touched by Grace, which I sent you, and I would urge people interested in my work with Jeff to check it out. I really go into detail there. It was only well after the fact I tried to sit down and do a musical analysis of what made these songs tick musically and why they may have struck a resonant chord with so many people besides Jeff's lovely voice and haunting lyrics. I think a lot that has to do with the song success, the underlying instrumental, which actually did suggest quite a few of his vocal lines. They were springboards for him anyway. There's a famous quote, it could have been Gary Snyder, I think the Zen poet, who said, if you call it, you stop the flow. And Don believed this too. So it's like when you get too close to examining something, you run the risk in picking it apart and trying to codify it, of really ruining the artifact I mean, if it's already created, okay, you can't. But you might ruin somebody's enjoyment of it. You know, it's like a magician doesn't reveal a secret. You have to be careful, I think, with too much analysis. I'm not trying to dupe anybody here or further mystify my work, but there is a mystical element in the creation of it that I feel that's part and parcel of my working methodology, and I can't really explain it. And I sometimes shy away from talking about it. One of my favorite writers currently is this great Hungarian writer, uh, Laszlo Krasnohorkai. He was asked certain questions about how he writes, and part of his work are seemingly endless sentences struck together with commas and semicolons that sometimes last for three or four pages of a chapter, I mean, one sentence. But the way he writes is so engaging. It's like you're monitoring his thought process, and he's carrying you forward with the flow. Even if you're not codifying this stuff so you can chart it out or anything, obviously it's very ingrained in your hands in that you're not one of these players that just never plays the same thing twice, even within this song. Like, it's very nicely structured. It's very tightly structured. Yeah, 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 yeah. But if they had recorded another take, I might have changed it around. I do a lot of rapid editing on the fly. I'm very much in the moment. And that's what keeps me fresh playing a lot of my older music. It's like Dylan, you know, if you go to see his concert, he does all of his chestnuts, but he's revised them to keep them fresh for himself. He might do a reggae version of Rainy Day Women. He might do, you know what I mean? He tried a lot of approaches. I'm not so extreme, but come to a solo concert of mine. And my favorite mode currently to play concert is solo acoustic, just because it's so easy in a wear and tear sense. I love playing with effects, and, you know, I've done a lot of effects pedal work, but there was a lot of schlepping of effects around that I've tried to eliminate for practical considerations of travel. It seems superfluous at this point. And the acoustic guitar is so much a one-man orchestra right there at your fingertips. You know, if you play it properly, I've orchestrated, you know, symphonic movements of Dvorak and Bruckner, etc. I have a record out, Gary Lucas plays Bohemian Classics. Oh yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. I'm very proud of that, and I did it by ear. I didn't get the score. I sat there and listened to the things, measure by measure. Yeah, it seems like that would complicate things, because then if you have the score, like, well, which part do I play? Not just the overall melodic sense and what's jumping out at you from the music. That's right. So what I had to do is just do it my way. My way. So 
if you're a traditionalist or if you're really a purist, my approach sometimes rubs such people the wrong way because they have a set mode of like how things should be done in terms of apprehending art and what they think constitutes fine art. Part of the component in my aesthetic is how labor-intensive is the work. I really do respect people who put in a lot of time on making their art. I mean, I love action painting as much as anybody, and I've certainly done a lot of improvisational recording, and I think it's valid. But at the end of the day, the stuff that kind of moves me the most could be really simple, but there's some life lived through it. It wasn't just like a real-time splatter-type experiment that was codified for all time. That's what this sounds like to me is sort of a mantra that you have these sections that you're repeating and just the rhythm of the thing that I can see how it'd be very easy to play this at this exact tempo and you know return to, to many of the same gestures, even though in the B section, sometimes you may be doing the high harmonic and just the first one or the first and the third or, you know, that you're changing these little things about it. And I'll, I'll say when I listened to this at first, I didn't get this impression. It was only when I spun it three or four times that it sunk into me and I could get some flavor of where you're coming from. That's great. I don't want to be understood too quickly either, you know, <laughs> but part of the thing is I am inspired by the world around me, but the interior world. I sort of withdraw into myself when I'm composing. In an old-fashioned sense, sometimes I've written some great music thinking about images of women, you know, I may or may not have ever known or met. But I find that they've made really good muses, I mean, at least in a mental image. Like, I want to make some music that's going to really impress this woman, you know, so that it would put a smile on her face if she heard it, if I ever got a chance to play it for her. That drives a lot of it, I'll be frank. The feminine principle. I have a piece on an early record I did for Zorn called Shekinah, which, if you know your Jewish mysticism, is the female principle energy of the universe. <laughs> I have a piece on an early record, God, the Monsters, called Dream of a Russian Princess that came to me in a dream. I was in Amsterdam at the end of a long tour in 1990, and I woke up in the middle of the night and I grabbed my guitar and this music was in my head and I had to get it down. Why it was called, I don't know, but I just saw before me this like elegant Russian princess from maybe 19th century. It was just like, it came out of a divine dream. I felt divinely inspired. I don't know what exactly drove it, but similar with Willow the Wisp, you know. And even the title I put on that, it's, I was referencing the transient nature of a lot of these visions that I'll have in music and that they're here and then they're gone and they may be illusory. It's like we're all part of the dance of Maya, if you know, but that philosophical approach, everything is like a play of energy before us on a screen, but what is really real out there? Well, I don't want to sound too ethereal and airy. <laughs> well, let's get explicitly ethereal and airy because the second song, as you said, this is Overture from your newest album, Stereopticon. Yes. Uh, with Is it Jan? Jan Close. Jan Close. Finest singers I've ever worked with. Yeah, no, I was looking up his stuff on YouTube last night and that he sang in Jesus Christ Superstar and yeah. these things like that. He was a bit like, you know, Jekyll and Hyde. He was in music theater, but he's a rocker at heart and he loved Jeff Buckley, I know. And he was suggested as a singer when I was mounting a tribute here in New York to Jeff and uh, he came forward and and I enjoyed it. And then we just said, well, let's see what happens if we start to write. And we quickly found it was very easy, and we were very pleased with the results. And then we brought in a, a lyricist friend of ours, Dan Beck, who had written for Dion and the Felix Cavalieri and people like that. And Dan is the lyricist on this overture piece. Okay. It's the last song on our new album. It could be like a rock opera. You know, It could be the overture to some new piece of work but it's very you know, philosophical lyrically. Come upon 
So this is, I think, quite different than the rest of the album, that the rest of the album has a lot of vaguely, I don't want to say country, but the sort of bluegrass. Anytime you're playing fast little arpeggios, it connotes bluegrass. But this one, no, is just that straight up, well, it's the same drop D, right, that you did for Mojo Pin. Is that, did you do that for both? Yeah, drop D. I don't know how I dropped into it, but that became a signature writing mode for me, circa the time of Mojo Pin and Grace. And I'll tell you a little secret. I think what may have influenced it is Evening Bell, the signature Beefheart solo piece. That's in Drop D, and that's only in Drop D because in listening to the tape he sent me of him through composing the piece on piano, it seemed to center on a tonal center of D. That was the lowest note he was playing on piano. So naturally, in order to achieve that in my arrangement, I detuned the E string down to D. Now, it meanders throughout a whole bunch of keys during the course of Evening Bell, but that seems to be where it's centered. So I'd been playing it in my show in Holland, and I think when I started writing, I might have had my guitar tuned to that. So maybe it's like the son of Evening Bell. I mean, I wouldn't have guessed that with Evening Bell, but with this, it's that classic thing that doing that just enables this drone to come out. As typical of Indian music or you know any kind of... Sure. deep spiritual music that had to have this undertone and just be able to move up and down the fretboard and create these new chord spaces that you don't even know what they're called, but because it has this underlying demodal thing going. Yes, when I give master classes often and I get specific about writing, then if people bring their guitars, I'll get them to go into a tuning and encourage them to find their own. There could be as many tunings as intervals that you're capable of assembling guitar. There could be dissonant tuning. There could be, you know, there are. Joni Mitchell had 83 or something, you know, like that she had invented. Anybody can do that. You know, it's like really, that's the beauty of the guitar. There is no right way or wrong way to play. Well, I think if you tune them all to the same note, that is the wrong way. That's, I'll, I'll go out and listen. <laughs> you say that, but Lou Reed claimed that All Tomorrow's Parties, that song on the first Velvet <laughs> Underground record is like, he saw a guitarist in a studio once where he was hanging out, tune his guitar all to one note, and that's how that... <laughs> all right. Did. He claimed that that was the origin of that song, so I don't know. Anyway, it's all valid, you know? It's like really what you make of it. And that's what I'm trying to encourage young people is to break out of rigid, dogmatic thinking that there's got to be one way for you to move forward in music or to sound like... And it sometimes comes down to your question of motivation. The reason I got into it was love of the thing. And I'm proud to say that's the root of the word amateur. So an amateur is not an inept person. An amateur is someone who's doing it for the love of the thing. I think I know when I'm in the presence of great music, when I get a visceral reaction, 
what the French would call a frisson, you know, a chill. So I'm looking for those, you know, thrills and chills all the time. But I give props to anybody trying to do it because I know how hard it is. So your book, really my favorite part about the book, but really a pretty stressful part was not even the part specifically on Jeff Buckley, but just the focus of your struggle to go professional, that you'd been doing this at an amateur level, although playing with Captain Beefheart on an amateur level seems like that's a surprising thing that people, <laughs> for people to learn that you're in this historical, internationally known band we didn't want to work, you know, I didn't really want to get out there and tour. You know, we all wanted to strut our stuff more than he did. He didn't feel he had anything left to prove, and he was suspicious. He didn't really like... I mean, he liked being on stage in the moment when it was working, but it was agony for him, like, just to get to A to B in general, so... Well, and that's obviously so many years. If Evening Bell, something like that, is obviously not the first thing you played that no. you've been working for 15 years before that whatever and at least five years after that without trying to go professional i mean in some ways it's for a reader or a listener after the fact you kind of want to forget about the financial troubles of the artists that you're listening to because it's irrelevant to the experience but right. it's also interesting that you know you were only motivated to get this solo show together the thing that became skeleton at the feast because you wanted to go professional and you didn't want to just join somebody's band. And this was the most efficient way for you to put that together was to just, okay, let's at least choose among the many things that you know how to do or you're good at doing to put together something that is presentable. And so it was financial necessity. It sounds like that really kind of pushed you to take this first creative step. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and more also because I, at that point, the job that I had, which was writing advertising for CBS Records, it seemed a total cul-de-sac for me. I was very bored doing it. I didn't really believe that it was actually doing that much, even for the artists. Although, you know, a lot of people remember this line I came up with for The Clash, the only group that matters, mm -hmm. which I thought at the time that they were, and they still were certainly one of the most important groups. But when I joined Beefheart, I was like, well, I think we're the only group that matters. So. In any case, they weren't allowing me to do what I really wanted to be doing there, which was being an A&R person and signing bands and developing artists or producing for them, you know. And so I thought, let's do the show and see what happens. And that was a turning point, you know. In 1988, I got offered a solo slot at the Knitting Factory Club. It was a mecca at that point for experimental music of all stripes. Everything that could go wrong in the run-up to the promotion of it did. I mean, they left my name out of the ad in the Village Voice that week. And I'm like, oh, God, it's going to be a disaster. But I got to do it. And I worked really hard developing a repertoire to play that night. And then, lo and behold, they turned people away at the door. It was a mob scene. Somehow the word got out and people wanted to hear what this sounded like. And I uh, got a several iron cores and they handed me 600 bucks off the door <laughs> on the way out. And I was like, yeah, okay, this is what I'm going to do for a living. Do you find any difference in how easy it is to, it sounds like your, your preferred writing method is to enter this spiritual state, which I can see that if you were doing something that was mind numbing all day, I mean, would that make it easier when you get home as a release to enter the state or harder because it's killing your soul every day, what you're doing? I think it was harder because I would feel so destroyed and so much like a prostitute every day coming home. All I wanted to do was escape into things like smoking marijuana, which was a big component of my life. I was doing a lot of self-medicating for years in order to get through the day. I mean, I'm not here to be a proponent for any kind of drug, and in fact, you don't need them. As someone who went through it and came out the door, I can tell you, yeah, I wrote some of these songs when I was like pretty stoned, but I didn't need it, and I could have done it without it, and I functioned fine without it for years, so anyway. But back in the day, that was a big crutch, and uh, it also just obscured and complicated my ambition, and it was a diversion that diverted me away from focusing on really what I needed to do to get the job done to establish myself as a creative artist. I think I just feared failure, like most people. Like, how can I make a living doing this? It's got to be hard as shit. I can't do that. I need health insurance. I don't have health insurance. I got a wife to support. I had all these factors driving me and also plaguing me and making me fear the next step forward. And then one day, I just got to a certain age and someone asked me to do a show or kind of dared me, and I just thought, I'm going to do a show. If it flops, it flops. Take the risk. It's easy for you 
now to have as your focus entering a spiritual zone kind of thing because you already have so much technique under your belt. It's like anything, right? Yes. When I was starting to play with people, the commonest thing would be to get together and people just want to emote in the moment, but yet they don't have that many years of that. You need a chop. You need a technical facility. You want to say anything original on your instrument. You've got to have some basic skills. I mean, there's occasional savants who can just make magic, but, you know, they couldn't repeat it. You want to be able to repeat these things. Yeah, I put in my due so that guitar playing became second nature to me. It was like an adjunct of my hand or my nervous system so that I didn't even have to think about it. The music just flowed through my fingertips. Let's turn back to Overture for a second because it, sure. this certainly complicates the matter in terms of the spiritual experience that you're describing You know, seems fundamentally solitary. I mean, you describe with Jeff Buckley doing this kind of thing, at least to get the basic skeleton of the song. You already written the basic skeleton of the song and that you were able in real time to inspire a good part of the melody, though he had to keep reworking it to make it, you know, its final thing, come up with the right words. How did that work with Jan here? Overture was something I'd had around as a sketch that I'd written a while ago. And in revisiting musicals, instrumental templates, that could function as good songs. And I think, for my money, a good song can function as an instrumental, and that the corollary is true, that an instrumental that can stand on its own as a coherent and satisfying, memorable piece of music is an excellent candidate to try and turn into a song. So I presented it at a writing session. I think it was, first of all, just me and Jan. It was before Dan Beck entered the picture. Mm -hmm. And he liked it. And he started to, like, what he was good at is spontaneously coming up with melodies on the music, on the spot. Now, Jeff could do it, but Jeff never showed me this. He always did his work in solitary. Hmm. You know, he might work on something in L.A. I, I sent him, like, the sketch on a cassette. That's how Grace and Mojo film got done. Six weeks later, he came to New York. He said, okay, you know that thing? you got a provisional title called Rise Up to Be. Now it's called Grace. And he pulls out a notebook and he finds the lyrics. Jan, no, was more like, I'm going to scat sing. Well, and I see some of that remain, that you, that the lyricist did not replace all the whole thing. On the session, you know, he said, I, I think I'm going to do scat over here. And I loved it because it was so free and beautiful. And shows like what he's capable of with that great vocal technique and his range. But when we first started on it, he was, you know, I played down the chords. He went, then we were feeding each other lyric lines. At that point, I was sort of also being proactive or mm-hmm. he was helping me to come up with a few things. And we thought, hey, this sounds like an overture to something. Like, this could be a music theater piece. Maybe it's about like a naive, like a candide figure just walking through a forest or he's coming out of town or something. And this is his song as he's singing to introduce the action of whatever this play becomes. Maybe it's about a musician who comes to a town or something, like an itinerant traveling musician. All right, so you had a bunch of ideas before the lyricist even came to it. But then it was further refined when Dan came into the picture. So he said, all right, I'm going to go home and work on lyrics that'll fit this. Now I have the idea. Jan did a scat melody. I played it down. He had a rough demo. And that's what he worked from. Then he came back, and then he and Jan went over his lyrics. And he had some definite input. I wouldn't say coach, but kind of inspire Jan to really feel what he was going for lyrically. When you get like many people on a song, this is sometimes where it either really works great or it founders. But I like to generally keep a one-on-one. And I usually love the singer to be the lyricist because the best lyrics function the most smoothly and sound the most truthful to an audience hearing the music. If these lyrics are written by the singer, they become personal to the singer's life often, unless he really removes himself and it's a narrative and like a short story. It doesn't have to be, but often if it's more personal. That seems almost a universal rule to me that there are a few singers that can get away with seeing somebody else's lyrics and still make it sound good. I mean, the Roger Daltrey being one of them, but for the most part, the personality has got to be there. Right. And so this one, I think, really worked because it's a generalized lyric. It's more of a philosophical statement about starting over again and rebirth and regeneration. But it seems to really encapsulate, I mean, in the way Jan sang it, it really grabs you. He's got a lot of emotion bleeding through that vocal 
and they strike home to me as truth. So that's why I like to send it to you because, you know, it was a good example of a song that was a successful collaboration. And I feel strongly about this. And I wrote Jeff once a letter. I he didn't respond, so I'm not sure he would have agreed. But in my opinion, a really successful collaboration oftentimes can take on a life much greater and larger than, let's say, the same material musically that might have resulted if only one of the collaborators had worked on it. In other words, I have many songs I wrote the lyrics for as well as music. And you like Coming Clean. Many of those songs, for instance, on that record are completely Gary Lewis songs. And I have a certain thing in my lyric writing, you know. I mean, I was an English major at Yale, for God's sake. So I sprinkle them with some literary references. It's just part of my makeup, you know. I'm a punster. It may lose people, but that's me. For instance, one of my latest projects is music from Betty Boop and Popeye cartoons that were done by Max and Dave Fleischer, the Fleischer brothers, here in New York in the 30s. They're really brilliant. So the name it had is Fleischerei, Gary Lucas's Fleischerei. Now, you'd have to probably be German to know Fleischerei, which is German for butcher shop. So it was my little joke, like, you know, we're butchering this cartoon music or something. I mean, I might have lose people. Or also they go like, Fleischerie? Fleischerie? How do you say this? I don't know. Fleischerie? What? I mean, I should have simplified it maybe and just called it boop, boop, a doop or something. But I don't always take the easy road. Speaking of eccentric preoccupations, I think that's a good transition to our third song, The Wall, from okay. your album of Chinese pop music from the 30s and 40s, The Edge of Heaven. 2010. Recorded in 2002. Oh, I see. And rejiggered with some extra tracks in 2010. Gotcha. It was recorded in the late 90s, and it emerged on 9-11. 2001 is when the French album came out. And yet in all this time, so the reason that you picked this is because I asked you to pick something that right. was kind of a failure that you would have done differently. And the only reason you thought this failed is because you didn't have a singer on it, whereas you had a singer on many of the other songs. And now in your live band, you do have a singer on it, at least some of the time, and it would have been better. It's still a very effective song. It's an instrumental, I'll say. <laughs> Which instrumental did I send you? There? It was The Wall. Yeah. Now, there's an instrumental version on that record, and there's one with the singer. I think the singer did a pretty good job. I don't want to slag her off. I'm not going to mention her name. But some people who knew the Chinese inflection which, you know, I'm embarrassed to say I was married to a Chinese woman for five years, but I speak very little Chinese. I think I could have done better, but it's pretty good. But again, I was just given no budget, and I was working with materials at hand.
I think I could make a better recording of it. And if I got my druthers, I would do it with this great singer, Sally Kwok, who was in my last yep. show of The Edge of Heaven. It was, it was at the BAM Fisher Theater in the Brooklyn Academy of Music a year and a half ago, and we sold out two nights. And I found Sally and the other singer, Haiti Mo, Maggie Mo, in Shanghai. I auditioned them during the Shanghai World Expo on the dime of the Holland Festival, who came to me and said, we'd love to do Chinese music with you, and we love this album, and can we put this on in a bigger scale with maybe slide projections of old Shanghai, and so that's how it really got going again. Okay. But obviously this has a lot of resonance for you for this to come up in 2002 originally and then go on to finish the album and then go on to do this uh, new presentation. I'd love to do it again. I posted some tracks last night on Facebook. This always like presses buttons when I post this stuff. And all I can say is it's a shame, I think, that there's an endemic resistance by Caucasians in the world to what they perceive as Chinese music. And it's mainly because it's most identified with Chinese opera, which sounds to many Westerners as very harsh and dissonant. But in fact, the music that I choose to focus on is an incredibly seductive and romantic fusion music that emerged from Shanghai in the, between the war era, when it was a free port. A film industry was created in the early 30s, and a recording industry flourished. And many foreigners found employment in, especially musicians, in the recording studios. And there were a lot of jazz bands from Europe and also the U.S., like Fletcher Henderson's band, who had residencies in Shanghai in some of these early years before World War II. And out of this ferment, a beautiful fusion and hybrid music of Chinese influences with Western and Tin Pan Alley influences, swing and jazz and big band, all merged to create this fantastic music. Yeah, after listening to your version a few times, I mean, I was kind of projecting on this. I was trying to imagine what the original instrumentation was, and I was, okay, well, that sort of sounds like a koto, but wait, koto is Japanese, that's not right. But I went and listened to, I couldn't find this song exactly, but a bunch of other Baiguang songs, and it's all very, you know, what you would hear in an American movie in that time period. Like, at least movies are the only thing that that survived for us to actually experience. Not too many people are listening to albums from the 1930s, but if you go into classic movies, the soundtrack is full of musicals and things. There are some people, there are nostalgia buffs who love, they will just listen exclusively all during the day to Chinese cinema, for instance, and this music. I mean, I was exposed to it because, like I mentioned, my ex-wife, my first wife is Chinese. And when we were starting to live together in Taipei, I had a, almost two years there out of college. She played me cassettes of this and she said, we grew up on this and Chinese people love this music all over the world. Have you ever heard anything like it? And I hadn't. It was otherworldly. I played it for Captain Beefheart, Don Van Vliet. He said, this is fantastic. Let's open our show with it. You know, So with the Beacon Theater, it was on the PA before we went on. So, yeah, you're right. Most people don't. But there are, you know, like I just did a session in Nashville with the singer of Live. I don't know if you know the band, Live. Yep. Chris Shen, who lives down there. And he just listens to 30s and 40s swing on the Sirius FM channel. That's all he listens to. <laughs> so, you know, there are people who love this kind of like retro. Anyway, I like elements of it. I try and soup it up, though, to make it more today. I don't want to live totally in the past. When I do these covers of older work, like I just did a record of, I told you, Max Fleischer music. It's called Gary Lucas's Fleischer Eye, music from Max Fleischer's cartoons. It focuses on Betty Boop and Popeye soundtracks, which I love from the 1930s. I think it's the other singer that you highlighted, Chao Xuan. Chao Xuan, yes. That has the more distinctive, you know, really high, like you would never hear that in America, whereas Bai Guang is a little more, yeah, somewhere between Ella Fitzgerald and Judy Garland kind of voice. And that's why I like this record. It's a tribute to two very contrasting styles of, I think the name of this is Shedeki, the style of Shanghai pop from the 30s. And, uh, well, I found two singers in Shanghai, Sally Kwok, to do the dark, husky, older woman, mm -hmm. bluesy voice of Baiguang, and Maggie Mo to do this kind of girlish, ingenue, high-pitched, very sweet and feminine voice of Joe Schwann. And, you know, you can find clips of Joe Schwann 
She was known as the golden voice of China. She was like the Chinese sweetheart in the early 30s. I mean, I love, I've played in China, and I've done this music. Chinese audiences go nuts, because it's like, well, here's this Westerner, this foreign devil, playing our music and adapting it to this American root-style, bluesy, folky American style. And he's got Chinese singers up there belting it out. And I think it's another good cultural approach because you're building a bridge and showing that as much as we want to give American music to the world, I like to take it back and show what a melting pot the world is. I know the pitfalls of multiculturalism, too. I'm not like blind to trying to face people's identities, and I respect it. But I think to be able to take a step forward and meet Someone from a different culture, nationality, religion, halfway and make a beautiful musical statement together. That's about the best thing you can do as an artist. You know, I mean, that's real democracy in action. You speak Chinese from being there, right? Or at least enough to... I can speak a little Yiddish. I can speak a little Chinese, a little Italian. A fair amount of French because I studied it for a couple of years in high school. The number of different collaborations that you're in a unique position. You know, most folks, if they're a singer primarily or a singer-slash-instrumentalist, then that determines their sound. They're always going to kind of sound like that. Whereas you've got half of the sound, or maybe even the sound that most people on first thinking will, will focus on, the vocal end, as a rotating cast of characters that's even ultimately dispensable. That whole, whole albums don't have singers on them at all. So I noticed one of your albums, The Infrarealist Session, with uh-huh. collaboration with Bruno Galindo, which has a little more, more reverb on the guitar, just a little more experimental outer space sounds. But yeah. what made you think, I really need somebody doing spoken word Spanish over this? What... <laughs> Well, this is a, I mean, here's a good example. Bruno is a really gifted Spanish poet and author, and we connected over social media. So he hooked up a gig for me in Mexico City. He said, why don't we put together a program of my poetry accompanied by your music? You can do some solo pieces. Gotcha. So do you speak Spanish? Let me just ask you that. A little bit. That's not one of the ones you mentioned. Enough to hear and like start speaking Spanish to you. I'm too sensitive about my poor pronunciation. and I ask merely because in this particular collaboration, you know, it sounds like he was using you, well, he, he had this stuff pre-written. It's more of a, just a synchronicity of separate creative impulses. It's not that you're using his, or was he explaining to you some of what was going on in the poets and, and that was... Translations of each yeah. So that helped me select what musical accompaniment I was going to come up with. Obviously, the stuff you're doing is still experimental in that you're looking at different collaborations, and but it's not trying to be more and more bizarre. You know, this stuff like The Wall, this whole album of Chinese pop is specifically trying to create a new hybrid, but it's audience accessible. That's right. That's what I'm about. I want to meet an audience halfway. I don't want to just play for an avant-ghetto. That was the name of one of my old compositions, by the way. Yeah, I don't like to be stuck there, and I don't want to just play there. If you look at these songs with Jeff, Going back to the Buckley song. I may be best known in the world for two things. Working with Captain Beefheart and working with Jeff Buckley. I'm always in fear that if I was to die today on my tombstone, if I had a tombstone, it would read ex-Captain Beefheart and then maybe ex-Jeff Buckley. So perhaps my work, it's my fate to be overshadowed. Even though I put nearly 30 albums out, all of which I would stand by. Maybe that I will ultimately be overshadowed by the work of these guys or their names. But it doesn't matter to me. As long as I'm still able to move forward and make a living doing this and strive to continue to create startling and original work that stands on its own, I think that it is audience accessible for sure. And that the main thing that my career suffered in as far as like a lack of a huge audience and recognition for what I do, is that it is so diverse. It's all over the map, you know? Most people go into music, and they have one thing, one gimmick. And either it works for them or it doesn't. Either they, you know, can really drive a fan base. But if they don't, then where do they go? They go back to that day job, do they go out of business? The whole road of music is littered with burnout people who weren't able to like, keep going. And they may have died in a gallant and spectacular fashion, but I don't want that to be my fate. I aim to continue to rise steadily in my pace. And I would say in this year of our Lord, what are we, 2016, considering that I didn't leave my day job until 1990, I'm more well-known in the world in general than I was when I started. 
Well, and that says a lot about the fact that you didn't do that. Obviously, you had the guitar skills that you could have just joined a band on guitar yep. at many points before that, but that just wasn't going to satisfy you creatively. Yeah, well, it wouldn't have really. I mean, I can just tell you bluntly. I had offers to join bands, you know, Jeff's band included, that came through as bass player. Maybe I was just too stupid, <laughs> but mainly too proud because it was like, well, look, you know, I started this band and Jeff was my singer. And then to like suddenly have the roles reversed, not that I was trying to imprison him in any role, mind you, but to be a sideman in his band, I don't think that's as interesting. Also, Joan Osborne, you know, there was uh, overtures made by her management for me to join her. And as part of the proviso, it was like, well, you can't put your own work out for two years. You got to give us a total commitment. I wasn't ready to do that. Maybe I would have made more money. But by God, I got a lot of work out. All right. Well, let's leave folks with one more song, which is uh, from your 2014 collaboration with Peter Hamill called Otherworld. And the song is called The Kid. And you were saying this is just one that you delivered the instrumental and he just ran with it. Finished instrumental, the actual title of my working title is Take Me to the Casbah. I'd written it in <laughs> France. <laughs> It was the first thing I gave him, and bam, he came back with the greatest like lyrics and melody fitted like a glove. He was like spot on as a collaborator. Great Peter Hamill. Well, and I'm sure this is that the song is not about Jeff Buckley, but I could not help after watching the uh, greetings from Tim Buckley movie yesterday and uh, reading your book over the weekend. I could not help but see at least as one example of a type of person described in the song being sucked in by the artistic life and chewed up by the system. Right. Well, he told me it was about somebody else, to be fair. I asked him about that. I don't know. You know, I never tell my collaborators what they should or should not write about lyrically. Let me ask you one more thing. So you're really in a unique position, having used so many different vocalists and having the approach that you do have for composition, where often a song is a complete instrumental, it's ready to perform, it's really enjoyable in and of itself. It doesn't need a vocal to complete it. However, I know that you're more of a rock guy than a jazz guy. And one of the conventions of that, one of the things that really makes a song press home is having that vocal hook. Right. However, once you do that, then it kind of polarizes. It makes it less universal. Whereas a guitar instrumental, a really well-arranged, nice, rich one, using the rich tones of the instrument, anybody can enjoy. Once you slap lyrics in Chinese, lyrics in yeah. Spanish, you know, any particular singer that might be really artsy to some people but annoying to other people, it kind of polarizes it. What, what are your thoughts about I know that that's true, but there's something I love about the human voice, and I've discussed this sometimes when I go into my love for the blues. One of the affinities between my guitar and a voice is the, uh, I mean, singing blues-based music that I might write, yeah. is that the two really are connected in that the vocals sometimes dovetail with what I'm playing on the guitar, and, and to bend a string on a guitar and vibrate it with like finger vibrato and everything is in a way an emulation of a human voice. So that I'm always going for this kind of quality of the guitar to actually talk and sing. And I think like when you get it with a really good singer, albeit any language, it just ratchets up the pleasure level, you know. But I hear what you're saying, and I, I've done all instrumental albums, some free jazz albums, I mean, didn't have any vocals on them that have come out. But in general, I think it's just intriguing. It's just something that maybe is a habit I acquired from listening to a lot of AM radio when I was a kid. I'm kind of a songs guy as much as I am an instrumental guy. Thank you so much. Mark, a pleasure talking to you, man. Kid walks up to the stage with his innocent shining, eager to join the parade of the damned. Bearing his confidence lightly, wearing his heart on his sleeve, shares out his passion twice nightly. And he begs us to care and believe The kid's quickly turning the page While the juices are flowing 
no assurance he gave worth a damn. Like a trooper Maybe it's gone to his head Fame takes him up as a suitor A kid gladly climbs in her bed Faustian deal But the demons That chase him Are real enough The kid At the front of the stage Gathers all the attention Help that he has Been paid off in full Sweet up the laurels And plaudits It seems They're no more than his due A price Will be paid In the audit But the kid Never thought Such things through It's terrified of the stage With his innocence tarnished Buries himself in a hazy half-life Fame's vindictive and unyielding lover Hiding away on his own The kid, not the first to discover Applause can't sustain you alone Call it a Faustian deal But the demons that chase him are living off Everything he touched is broken, everything is damned But he's running away from the stage just as far Ah, Peter Hamill, one of my favorite songwriters. Very polarizing. But Gary, another super nice guy. Heap of interesting experiences. As with previous episodes, I did continue to talk with him. Although in this case, it was not right after the discussion. It was actually two weeks later that I had a few follow-up questions. So I included part of one of those in what you just heard. But we had a whole discussion about musicians' egos and how the need to self-promote might conflict with this Zen state of oneness with your guitar that he described. If you want to hear that, you have to go to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, sign up for your $5 recurring donation to become an official supporter of the podcast, and you'll get access to lots of bonus audio. Now, our further discussion on this episode also included some more about that project, the Infrarealist Sessions, so you get to hear a track from that, as well as a track from his more recent album, Fleischerei, and that instrumental he recorded for Captain Beefheart Evening Bell. There's another thing. Right after we recorded this discussion when he said that the first song that we discussed here, Willow the Wisp, actually was intended to have a singer. So I took that as a personal challenge and I recorded my own melody slash vocals for it. I sent it to Gary. He did really like it. He said, anyway. And what I proposed to him is that we make the raw track available to any singer listeners that might tune in here to try your own version. So if you are musically inclined, go ahead, pull the audio right out of this podcast, lay your own track on top of it, you can send it to me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, and if anybody actually does this, I will share the results with Gary and with our audience here. Now, I wouldn't want your ideas to be polluted by my ideas, so if you want to hear my version, you're going to have to go slightly out of your way, 
go check out our parent podcast, The Partially Examined Life, episode 135. It's going to be released on March 14th to Partially Examined Life Citizens, March 21st on the public feed. At the end of that episode, you'll hear my version, which I have called Flow, very much inspired by my conversation here with Gary about how thinking too much disrupts your flow. I mean, that's really what The Partially Examined Life is all about in the first place. It's only partially examined because being fully examined all the time is kind of a sickness. Now, despite that ideological connection, I do not buy Gary's claim at the beginning of this episode that talking about the music theory behind one of his instrumentals would somehow ruin it for listeners. On the contrary, the whole point of this podcast is that music really doesn't speak for itself. Or at least for it to do so, you'd really have to stop and just give it all of your attention, which in these busy times is hard to do. So I think the more that we provide explanation, the more that we talk about a song, the more that induces you to stop and really listen to it on its own terms. Plus, it gives you some hermeneutic tools. It gives you a way in, a way to understand what you're hearing. Because you don't have exactly the background that the artist did, of course. You don't know why the artist is doing this. You don't know what standards by which to judge it. There's certainly no way that I would know, listening to that version of his Chinese tune, The Wall, that this was his less-than-perfect version. Although you can judge for yourself, because I have linked from the blog post corresponding to this episode to his more recent live version with Sally Kwok on vocals. In any case, it was great to have the perspective of a songwriter here, who, even though he is a songwriter, he's not just a guitarist, and a very good songwriter, starts, unlike Kevin Godley, unlike Jeff Heiskell, with his instrument, and considers that, legitimately, a whole song, even if it doesn't happen to have a hummable vocal line over it. Now, of course, I've talked to Gareth Mitchell in episode four, who also writes instrumentals, and hopefully I'll talk to plenty more people like that. In fact, I just now recorded episode 12 with John Philip Chanel, who is a super accomplished orchestrator slash keyboardist slash producer. He goes by Phil, and when Phil collaborates with a vocalist, for instance, it's certainly not the case that his instrumental part is set in stone and that he doesn't tell the vocalist what to do, that there's just supposed to be this largely unspoken communication between independent artists that somehow creates a unity, a full song, in the way that Gary does when he works with a vocalist. Now, I have no doubt many people listening to this have participated in other sorts of arrangements, whether as instrumentalists or as vocalists, in collaborating with other people. And if you've got stories, I would like to hear them. Reach out to me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Maybe you'll end up on the show, or maybe I will steer you, at least initially, into recording a song self-exam. I'm happy to say that the first song self-exam that I promised I would record, I did record, and is now posted at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, so you can at last hear one of my songs and hear me talk about it. Although, really, with a little digging, you can easily do that. In fact, just before launching this podcast, first you might want to look for the Partially Examined Life Christmas Special which includes the entirety of my recently released album, Songs from the Partially Examined Life, with me talking with several different people, giving brief introductions to the songs. I also, a month before that, was on the Gig Gab podcast, which is a great resource for working musicians, run by my old bandmate from Austin, Texas, Dave Hamilton. So I was able, in that forum, to give a little more of the story of at least my time in Texas with him. And there's lots more of my music at marklint.com. And make sure, of course, to check out GaryLucas.com. Finally, I need your help. If you're enjoying this and make use of or can get access to the iTunes store, it would really help me if you can go leave a five-star rating, leave a review, or just put a link up to this episode or to this podcast on your Facebook page, on your Twitter account. Send it to your fellow musicians or fellow music fans. we got a lot of good guests coming up, the next one being Tim Quirk from Too Much Joy. Hope you tune in again. Thanks for your support. This is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.